our most valuable currency is relationship and the conversation is the relationship. The best ideas will sometimes come from the unlikely source. Hey folks, this is Abe Shreve. Welcome to another episode of the Choose Difficult Podcast. The path to success is not easy and here we explore the stories of those who choose difficult and change the world they live in. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to the amazing Susan Scott. Now, there's a high likelihood I'm not introducing you. You may have read her book, Fierce Conversations. That's the first introduction I had to Susan's work over a decade ago. She also wrote a book called Fierce Leadership. She's a sought after Fortune 100 speaker. She's got multiple TEDx talks out there. I mean, Susan has really accomplished. And I found her delightful. In fact, at the time that we did the interview with Susan, she was in her treehouse that sits on top of a small mountain on an island outside of Washington State. I mean, she is a lot of fun, and you're going to learn that about her. Susan told me that she grew up in the South and that her parents introduced her to the great classics of children literature. I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I'm a Southern girl. Um, I'm all for lightning bugs and cicadas and thunderstorms and all those great loblolly pines and the things that are wonderful about the South and Southern men who are absolutely darling. And my parents read when I was little, they read every great piece of children's literature to me that there was. And they read them. They played the parts because they had met playing uh, romantic leads opposite one another in a play. So they were very theatrical, my parents. And so they read and acted out everything from Wind in the Willows to The Hobbit to Kipling's Jungle Book, everything. And so I love, and once I could read myself, that's really what I wanted to do. So I read and read, and that's what I studied in college. And I taught English in high school for several years in the Midwest when then my family moved to Seattle and I decided to make a change and I made a change. And only because, I mean, I love teaching, but when you teach something different every hour of the day, that's a lot of lesson plans, a lot of papers to grade. And I have two daughters of of my own that I, you know, I just wanted to spend time with. And so I actually became a recruiter. I came to the distinct impression that Susan is basically good at everything she tries. And I think part of that is because she just leans so heavily into it. This season of life, she leans into becoming a great executive recruiter. And she has the funniest story about working with a CEO that looked like a 12-year-old. One of our recruiters came back from a meeting with a new client. She said, I'm not going to work with them because I don't understand a thing about what they do. And they're so-called leader looks like he's about 12 years old. I said, I'll go, I'll go. And I did. And it was Bill Gates. (laughs) And he had like 15 employees total and they had no furniture. And I kicked off my high heels and we sat on the floor and we ordered pizza and, you know, off we went. But I think the thing, the theme here, the reason I mentioned this to you is because, you know, when they were saying, here's what we need, one of these, we need two of those, et cetera. My response was, I am going to go get you the very best one of those and two of those ever. And I do not have a clue as to what you're talking about. Please indulge me and educate me. I'm a fast learner. Once I understand where such an exotic creature might be dwelling, I'll know what to do. But right now I'm clueless. And they did. And they were very, they laughed. 
And I've never had, whenever I've said to somebody, I have, I don't have a clue. They never judge me. They kind of smile because sometimes we all don't have a clue. This made me laugh right out loud. And the reason it made me laugh right out loud is because Susan is so real the way that she talks. And I have an opportunity to work with great leaders and she has an opportunity to work with great leaders. And we both came together with the understanding that behind the curtain, everybody is struggling with something. We don't have to know everything. And the leaders that fake it, that feel like they have to be seen as the one that has all the answers, they have to be seen as the leaders that know everything, they're the ones that cause a lot of problems or at least make their life more difficult than it needs to be. This was Susan's intro into the business world. So that was an introduction to business because it was like I, I became the, the external HR department for a lot of companies. And then after eight years of, of doing that, I just really wanted to get back into teaching, but I wanted to teach adults. So I started teaching all kinds of courses and cor- these were corporate courses primarily, and even high ropes courses where we would haul people up into the trees and have them do scary things. And it was during that time when I met someone who had gone to work for this organization that sponsored these groups around the world, these groups of CEOs. And he had heard that they were looking to hire their first female chair. And he recommended me. And I think they were desperate, Abe. I I mean, today I would not have qualified for that role because they were looking for experienced CEOs and presidents and entrepreneurs. And I wasn't any of those things, but they hired me. And I was on the journey and went in with my curiosity and my willingness to say, I don't know, but I will learn. But I realized, you know, what I had thought would would be a good one-to-one with a CEO where they just told me everything that was going on. I asked questions. I took notes. And the next time I would come back, I'd follow up, you know, what happened here? What happened there? What happened here? Until one day... One of my favorite guys at the very end of our two hours, when I need to walk out of the door and go meet with a different one, he said, Suze, what if everybody who has the kind of t-shirts that we produce has all the t-shirts they need? And I won't tell you the rest of that story, but long story short, his company was in serious trouble and he had not fessed up to that with me or with the group because it was too hard. It was too scary. It was too big. It was too complex. It wasn't something he felt he could just turn around on a dime. He had been hanging out in hope that the marketplace was going to change. And he ended up selling his business for, you know, walking away with a t-shirt on his back, basically. And that was a failure. And I just, and the group and I, felt we, we can never let that happen. That should not happen on our watch. The, he's, he was one of ours and we loved him very much. So that's when I had to, okay, the way I have been having these one-to-one conversations with CEOs does not work. I need to start them with this question. Think about everything that is on your plate, everything that has your name on it, and tell me what is the most important thing we should be talking about today. And if they ever said, "Mm, I don't know, I'd say, well, what would it be if you did know? And they would think about it and we'd be off and running. And that's, you know, I wanted to make sure we tackled that and then ask enough questions that 
they would have self-generated insights about what was going on and what needed to happen and you know the prices they were paying for the situation being the way it was and if nothing changed what was likely to occur and if the problem was resolved what difference would that make and by the time we were through with that particular coaching conversation they were so fired up and ready to take action that I knew they were, you know, when I came back the next month, that they weren't going to be in the same place they were. So they would have moved. They would have done something. Well, that may sound simple, right? I would just ask them, what's the very most important thing? And then I wouldn't let them get away with not coming up with something significant. So she'd push. And that seems simple. And the truth is, simple, not easy. It is the answer. As human beings, we have a tendency to recruit the weight of challenges. Let me explain what I mean by that. When you have a lot of pressing issues coming at you, especially in a leadership role like a CEO, they stack on top of each other and pretty soon it just feels like everything is on your plate. And the way that you outfox recruiting those challenging issues, the way that you do that is you find the one, the most important one, the one that if you knock that one down, it makes everything else easier, you breathe easier, you go find that one, and you do that one. This is really what Susan's doing when she asked this question. In fact, my partners in business wrote a book called The One Thing. You've, we've featured both the author and the president of that company. We feature them here on this podcast. But they share what they call the focusing question, which is really similar to what Susan's saying here. What's the one thing I can do such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or unnecessary? There is power in identifying the thing that is causing you the most stress and knocking that one thing off. And when you do that, you can gain clarity, you get all kinds of mental reserves that come back to you. I think Susan was ahead of her time. And whether she knew it at the time or not, her not holding herself hostage to what she didn't know and keeping herself in coach mode, which means she was asking insightful questions and and taking them deeper, that will always be the right way to lead a leader. I think people don't understand that they're just like you and me. They really are. I just, for whatever reason, was never intimidated by any of them. And some of them, you know, lead pretty well-known organizations. But to me, they're, they're people. I, I just imagine sitting out in the backyard and having a beer together and talking or a glass of wine or something and just talking and talking with them like I would be talking with an old, old friend. And that was how I approached it. And also, I, I was willing to risk their wrath which I did receive from time to time by bringing up issues they definitely did not want to talk about and insisting that we talk about them, that we go there. And they would sometimes give me the look, you know, (laughs) it's like, really? Yeah, really. And we would go there. And then here's what's really important, Abe. What I learned, and this has helped me so much in my own company, is that a leader A leader's job is not to be right about solutions and strategies and everything. A leader's job is to get it right for the company. And that means you've got to have the right people in the room. The answers are in the room, but only if we have the right people in the room. I mean, there is an amazing thing that can happen in a room when people are telling the truth and Sadly, you know, in in a lot of companies, people sort of unanimously create this conspiracy of silence. And one word of truth sounds like a pistol shot. 
It's just, we're not used to the telling the truth. And that's what fierce is all about, but doing it with skill, with great skill. And so that's what we teach people because that's, you know, we, we want people to, to actually innovate. We want people to, to construct strategies that will move them forward. We want them to be very successful and happy. And so we teach them the conversations that help them make that happen. I believe it's as important to talk about how we talk about things as it is the things we talk about. That's really what Susan is saying here. She's saying that great cultures, great companies, great leaders want an environment where people feel free to raise their hand and contribute their best thinking. But a lot of times, if we don't have a method, if we don't have a process for facilitating those conversations, we get held back by fear, by fear of judgment, by fear that our leader will be disappointed in us or that we'll look dumb. Or if you're on the other side, if you're the leader, that you just don't want to be interrupted or you don't want someone to question you or tell you you're wrong. And all of that stifles growth. The companies that are the most successful are those that understand that the most important thing they have in their company is their people. And unlocking great conversations to extract the best thinking of your group is the most important thing you can do. Our most valuable currency, to your point, is not money, it's not charisma, it's not multiple degrees, it's not fluency in three-letter acronyms. Our most valuable currency is relationship. And the conversation is the relationship. So I, every single conversation I'm having is either enriching or flatlining or harming a relationship. I've seen brilliant leaders ride in on the white horse with a truly great strategy and end up riding out the back door somewhat dejected because they did not capture people's hearts as well as their heads. I mean, we talk about the importance of smart plus heart. You need both. One without the other is inadequate. So it's all about the relationship. In fact, I think I shared with you and we talked earlier that, you know, I've just finished writing Fierce Love, which is about personal relationships, couples. It's really, it's all about the conversation. And we just, here's where I actually want to spend a little time thinking about the thought that so many people have and the phrase that so many people use. And even a dear friend who was a co-author on a book titled Difficult Conversations, right? And you're, you're all about choose difficult. I mean, go there. But I understand why people think, oh my gosh, this is not the day that I'm going to have that conversation. It, it would be difficult. It could get messy. That person might not respond the way I want to. You know, I just don't. Last time I tried this, it, it blew up. But what I want people to understand is what is truly difficult is living with all of the prices that you are paying for not having the conversations. It is the missing conversations that are the most expensive. So to me, one of the things that I do is I help people understand what is at stake for you around this particular conversation, at stake to gain as well as at stake to lose if you don't have it or if you don't have it well. And, you know, when, when we understand what the prices we've been paying, whether it's a company or a relationship, a team, personal, whatever it is, when we realize what we're living with every day because we are withholding 
what we're really thinking and feeling and not having that conversation when we think about, oh my God, if nothing changes and it's a year down the road, I'm not even sure I want to be here. I'm just, you know, it, it wouldn't be good. And then we teach them how to have that conversation in a way that will tackle the tough talent challenge and at the same time enrich the relationship rather than harm it. I want you to think about someone in your own life right now. We're getting personal. Look alive. If you're driving, stay focused. But I want you to think about who in your life right now are you do a conversation with and you're putting it off. And what is that costing you? Really think about it. Because when we know that we have to have an important conversation with someone and we put it off because it's uncomfortable or we think they're just not going to receive it, we create all kinds of stories about that person. We experience all the emotions associated with those horrible experiences. And by the way, those experiences haven't happened yet. We're projecting to the future. We're writing future history that hasn't occurred. And then we're assigning it to them. We often don't know what a person's thinking. And I can prove it. I can prove it. I want you to think of a time that you've been at odds with someone and then you got into the conversation and by the time it was over, the feeling between the two of you was essentially, I can't believe that we didn't talk sooner. Talking is the cure, having the right conversation. It's just that many of us aren't good at it. And so we think that we're naturally supposed to be good at it. But no, Susan teaches skills and she has models to help us be good at this. Because no matter how good we think we are, we do not know what's going on in the mind of another person. You know how when you're talking about something, you're thinking about something, you're in a conversation with a person or several people, and all of a sudden your mind hops onto a different topic, perhaps a memory, perhaps something that happened yesterday, something that's coming up. And the thing is, you've made a shift, and that shift is utterly unique to you. No one else would have gone from A to K in lightning speed like you did, but you did. So we do not know what it's like to be another person. If I said, picture your dream house, will you picture a mega mansion, a beach cottage, a log cabin, a high-rise apartment, a loft in Soho, a tree house where I am? I mean, if I said, what is a good person, or how do you feel about animals? So we've got all this stuff inside us that isn't visible. And it's like, you know, in The Wizard of Oz, where at the end, Dorothy, she's in Oz, and there's all this lightning and thunder going on. And Toto, the little dog, pulls the curtain back. And here's this little man who's pulling all these levers and making all these special effects. And he says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. That little man behind the curtain is running the show. That man is our context. And the thing is, we're always interpreting everything everybody says and being interpreted in turn, and we often get it wrong. An email is can be very problematic because if all we have are words on a page, we will definitely assign the most negative meaning to it. And I don't know what it is about humans that we go there, but we tend to go there. For example, online meetings like this, and you and I are looking at each other. I know your listeners won't see us, but you and I are looking at each other and we really are looking at each other. We are not playing solitaire under the table or multitasking over here or whatever. And a lot of times in meetings, People aren't really there. So one of the things we did at Fierce is we said a couple of things. One is there is a dress code. 
When you show up for an online meeting, you need to be business casual. Do not show up in your sweats. And I want you to be sitting up straight and I don't want you to be sitting on your bed. And I, it's fine if your dog is in the room, that's kind of fun. But, you know, show up business casual as if you were in the office. What would you wear to the office? And look at the person speaking. Also, I'm gonna call on people randomly throughout this meeting to ask you what your thoughts are. So you don't want to be caught not having paid any attention at all. I mean, really look. And our facilitators who all of our training is online now, it has to be, you know, they really tell the attendees that's going to be very important. I want you to pretend like we're in the room. We are having a conversation. We are looking at one another. This is live. This is real. This is intimate. So close your, you know, close your laptops, except for the one where you're seeing me on the screen, but close any other screen that you've got. Put your phone away and turn it off. I mean, away, out of reach and be here prepared to be nowhere else. That's one of the principles of fierce conversations. I think she's addressing a huge problem in society today. And by the way, I am guilty. And so are you. So a funny thing happens. We'll be talking to someone and we'll get a text. Now, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. You may not know this, but everyone can see when you check your phone. If you're on a Zoom call, everyone can see it. We know. The reason we know is because we do that. That's where our arm goes when we're going to check a message. And so I may be talking face-to-face with someone, and I'll get a text, and I will say to them, oh, I'm sorry, it's just so-and-so, as if that makes it acceptable to leave this conversation and go to another one. Imagine that you were out to dinner, and someone was telling, you were, you were telling someone something that happened to you, and right in the middle of you speaking, they just right out of the blue said, hey, Sarah, how are you? And they started talking to someone across the restaurant. That's the equivalent of turning your gaze away from someone and focusing on another conversation. It is hard. We have been programmed by the phone in our pocket to do this. I know that's true because have you ever felt your phone buzz and you went to your pocket and it's not even there? This is an issue. We are so distracted. But there is a secret that the great leaders have learned. And that is they help people in their world understand that they are important to them by giving them undivided attention. If you've set time aside to work with someone, give them that time because everyone has something important to contribute. But I think we forget that the people that we're talking to, whether it's one-on-one or whether it's a group, each of them is an absolutely unique human being. There is no other Abe Shreve on this planet. And what you're thinking and what you're feeling is going to be different from what somebody else is thinking and feeling. And it's all really important. I'm just reminded of some dating advice I was given years ago. I was told there are five things that are really important when you're looking for a man. You need to look for a man who has a job, hopefully one for which he's paid. That'd be good. Two, you need to find a man with a great sense of humor, makes you laugh. Three, you need to find somebody who's willing to help out around the house as handy, you know, with tools. Four, you need to find a really wonderful, passionate lover. And five, you need to make sure that those four men never meet. <laughs> and unfortunately, isn't that good? In, in our companies, those four people don't meet. And yet each one of them would have brought to the table something really, really valuable. And we want them to meet. We want them to, uh, to come together in, in the room to, to get beyond 
where we were the last time we met? You know, how can we think deeper about that? And sometimes we need to invite people we don't usually invite into the room. There's a story about Jack Welch. They bought a company, big manufacturing company. He called a big meeting in their huge warehouse and everybody's standing there and he's saying, I want your ideas. We got some problems we need to fix. If anybody got any ideas, you know, I'm open to hearing them. And this guy way in the back in overalls is waving his hand. So they pass a microphone back to him. And the guy says, I've had an idea that I've been thinking about for a while. And it's this. And he lays it out. And Jack Welch said, my gosh, that is a great idea. Thank you. And the man said, Mr. Welch, all these years, they have been paying for our hands when they could have had our minds for free. And I think about that. We discount people who could probably, depending on the issue, the topic that's under discussion, should be invited into the room to get their perspective before any decisions are made because a leader's job is to get it right, not be right. If you're keeping notes, and I hope you are, write that one down. A leader's job is to get it right, not to be right. It's really exhausting to have to be the one that comes up with all the answers, the smartest guy in the room. The great leaders don't do that. There's something in human nature called competition where we sometimes feel threatened by other people coming into the group and being invited to say their ideas. And what if their ideas are better than any ideas I've ever put on the table? I think one of the big problems is people are focused on narrow self-interest versus the common good for the larger organization, the larger planet in our case. So I think people get protective of their role. And also I think people, I don't know, they get a little full of themselves when they get a title. And titles are so, what I've told everybody at Fierce is your title gives some clarity about your realm of responsibility, but that's all it does. (laughs) You know, it doesn't make you a leader. That is behavior. That's how you behave. And that's going to show up or not every single day. And everybody else will decide whether you're a leader, not you and you're not your title. So I think we, you know, we get promoted, 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 and then we we're there and we think I've arrived and it was hard to get here. And I don't want to let anybody else in for a while. And I think we also, I've I've been working with this physician, neonatologist, Tony Orsini. And he pointed out that in um, what happens when, when doctors first start medical school, they're so passionate about helping patients, making sick people well, and they care a great deal. They're, they're emotionally involved. They feel connected to people when they meet with patients. And over time, all the years and years and years of postgraduate training, they kind of lose their compassion. They lose that connection. And they're just going through the motions of, okay, you know, you've got this rash, here's this ointment. You know, you've got this, here's the solution, blah, blah, blah. Instead of really connecting, and I believe that if you want to be a great leader, you must gain the capacity and the courage to connect with the people who are important to you at a deep level or lower your aim. Because the next frontier for exponential growth, whether it's for a company or for an individual, lies in the area of human connection. And a lot of people don't know how to do that, don't like the sound of it, are terrified at the sound of it, but they don't understand what's at stake. I love the way Susan talks, that human connectivity is the next frontier for the leader. 
And I really agree with that. There are some that would say, I just get things done. People do their job because it's their job and I'm the boss. And if you're that kind of leader, there's a high likelihood that behind you is a long trail of human capital carnage. Great leaders understand that they succeed through others. And for that, it takes daily attention. That's where the connectivity comes from. It's a big part of what we teach because some of what we teach was inspired by reading Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises, there's my English lit background, in which a character is asked, how did you go bankrupt? And he responds, gradually and then suddenly. And I had an epiphany that our careers and our companies and our relationships and indeed our very lives succeed or fail gradually, then suddenly, one conversation at a time. So we always wake up when we arrive at a suddenly. It could be a great suddenly, a promotion, an engagement, something wonderful, or it could be, I want a divorce or somebody leaving or losing a customer. And we always wake up at suddenly. So I want people to stay awake during gradually because that is where we live 90% of our lives. And we tend to to coast along, you know, how sometimes when you're driving a familiar route and you arrive where you were going and you don't even know how you got there because it was so automatic. And I think there's a lot of that that happens in our lives, understandably. But I think, you know, to stop and and interrogate reality, that's one of the objectives of a fierce conversation, to interrogate reality because no plan survives its collision with reality. And reality has this irritating habit of shifting, which seriously complicates our fantasies about how things were going to go. I mean, look at COVID for crying out loud. That changed everybody's reality on this planet. But also people change and forget to tell one another. So we need to regularly interrogate reality. We need to say, okay, what has changed since the last time we met? You know, what are you seeing out there that we need to, to know what are you, what are shifts are you noticing? What do we need to be paying attention to? I love what she just said. People change and they forget to tell you. So this idea that we're going to establish how a person is, and then it, we're going to set it and forget it because they're never going to change. That is not going to work out for anybody. In fact, the greatest leaders are the ones that ask for help. They show that vulnerability. There is something quite marvelous when a leader says, I need help. I don't have all the answers. I need your help. Everybody circles the wagons. Everybody does. And nobody thinks less of the leader. They think more of the leader and and they want, or, or if anybody who says that, we need to be able to say that. And even if I can just circle back to the, your point about vulnerability, there again, I completely understand the, the meaning that most people place on that idea. But I, again, to be a bit contrarian, I think we're more vulnerable when we withhold what we're really thinking and feeling because nothing is going to change. We're in that gradually, gradually, and eventually we could arrive at a really horrible Suddenly, so I don't, and that to me is a vulnerability. I'm vulnerable to things happening out there in the world because I have not disclosed what I'm really thinking and feeling. There is a movie moment that I think really illustrates well this idea that we need the whole group, that a great leader has to be open to the contribution of everyone there. 
It's the movie Apollo 13 with Tom Hanks, and you'll recall those infamous words, Houston, we have a problem. We have astronauts in space, you got a group down in the command center, and they are tasked with coming up with a solution that can be executed in space so we can return these astronauts safely to Earth. A guy runs in, he's got a bunch of stuff in his arms, and he throws it on the table, he says, here's what they have up there, this is what we have to create a solution. Imagine if the leader of that group had gathered up all those materials and gone to his office. We would have had a bunch of dead astronauts. The lives of those astronauts required the best thinking of everyone at that table. And you know that saying, it's lonely at the top? If it is, that's the leader's problem because it doesn't need to be. It shouldn't be. You know, when people come into the company, they come in bringing all of their talent and their skills and wanting to help. And in Studs Terkel's book, Working, he described a young woman named Nora who graduated from a prestigious college and is hired by a big firm and comes in all loaded for bear, you know, and then she discovers very quickly that all that she has, it would not be welcome because it would wreck the curve for the people around her, that her ideas are really not that welcomed. And she very quickly absented her spirit from her work. That has stayed with me all these years. I mean, I probably read that 25 years ago. And when we don't recognize that our employees have the desire to help and go to them for help, then we're missing out on a huge resource. And by the same token, we have some employees who don't necessarily want to help. And we realize, I don't think, I don't think we need you. You know, I mean, I'm going to make you available to industry. Have you ever noticed that your title doesn't deliver with it a new set of communication skills? (laughs) Skills don't transfer that way, do they? They require work. And we may or may not have the right person in the right role doing the right thing, but the only way to prove it is by skillfully executing the right conversations. Otherwise, there's no way for us to prove it. And we may introduce someone to industry that would have been great had we had the skill to facilitate the right conversations. Susan's material is as good as anything I have seen on this topic of facilitating fierce conversations. You know, everybody talks about ongoing learning, lifelong learning, but it's just something that is said and and people don't really take it seriously. There is something, if you're paying attention, there's something probably every day that should come across your field of vision, your chain of thought. And you would say, hmm, let me snag that one for a second and look at that because there's something there. It's one of the reasons why I tend to read good fiction all the time. There's so many fabulous quotes in good fiction that I absolutely love. And I think, wow, I never thought of it that way. And so provoke learning, we will provoke learning when we get everybody's stripe on the table. And what happens in those meetings, those beach ball meetings, people start out strongly held opinion. Here's my stripe at the end. And every you hear from everybody. And at the end of the meeting, the way it ends is you say, okay, I want given everything we've just discussed, Take this little piece of paper and give me one or two, your best thoughts, given everything we've just tackled, give me your best advice, not a long essay, just one or two things. And then they go around the room and everybody says, this is what I wrote. And it's amazing to see how people have shift, like I have done so many times. They came in saying, this is what we need to do. And they go out saying, no, actually, this is what we need to do. So learning was provoked. And they tend to to value 
the person who provoked their learning. Sometimes, gosh, I wish I'd thought of that. I wish I had said that, you know. So it almost always happens in a, in a beach ball meeting where we're really interrogating multiple competing realities. That's a thing of beauty. And I, I know that when I was chairing those meetings of CEOs, sometimes we had one guy who was the CEO of a, the largest funeral home in the state of Washington. And he kind of looked the part <laughs> and he's dead now. He's buried in that cemetery and he and I walked it many times. And I think sometimes when a new CEO would come in, they would discount him. They'd look at him and they think, oh, I don't know. Why is this guy even here? He was brilliant. And he was usually the last person to say anything. And, and people would say, here's what we need to do. Here's where we are. Here's where we are. And we'd think we were all done. And Dave, Dave Daly, he would say, here's a thought. And he'd put it out there and everybody would stare at him. It's like, oh my God, where did that come from? How is it that you came up with that? Because that is not just a solution. It is a complete and elegant solution no one person would have thought of. And probably Dave wouldn't either if he hadn't heard from everybody else, but he was sitting there processing, processing, processing. So, you know, the respect for him, instant respect. I remember once working with oil executives and the, the administrative assistant of the CEO was in the beach bomb meeting and we went around to get everybody's thoughts and I called on her and she said, oh, I, I don't have anything to add. And I said, well, what would you add if you did have something to add? And she looked kind of, you know, frozen in the headlights. And all I could tell all the people, men, they were all men, were looking at me like, don't do that to her. Don't, don't put her in that position. You know, that's, that's unkind. That's cruel. That's embarrassing. And I just waited. And then she said, well, you guys aren't going to like this. I don't think you're talking about the right thing. I think what we should be talking about is, and she put it out there on the table. And I swear to God, you heard the gasps. She nailed it. She absolutely nailed it. The respect for her went through the roof. She was never not asked after that, because after all, as the administrative assistant to the CEO, she knew where all the bodies were buried. She knew everything that was going on. We, we have to understand that the, the best ideas will sometimes come from the unlikely source. So you have to say, given this is our topic, whose perspective would be useful to understand? And sometimes it's the customer, what a concept. Sometimes it's the customer who actually maybe should be in the room for that conversation. It's a novel idea, isn't it? Maybe we should ask the customer. Think about your business right now. Are you stuck and are you missing critical input from your consumer? Should they get in the room? Susan shared with us a really funny story about a time where the customer was in the room and someone discovered that they weren't working on the right project. We did that with a company where the customer was in the room and people were going on and on and on about here's what we're creating and here's all the bells and whistles and blah, 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 blah. And finally, the customer said, that's really cool, but I'm not going to pay for that. That's not what I need. What I need is, and there it was. And I mean, we had wasted so much time talking about everybody's really cool ideas that they got so invested in. And the customer saying, yeah, not, I mean, that's cool. If you want to give that to me, you can give it to me as a bonus. Don't charge me for it because I don't really need it. What I need is this. And I just, one of the things I love about our people at Fierce is they have the most 
beautiful conversations with our clients and potential clients where they really go deep. They really do connect at that deep level. And I think the toughest challenge for companies today is providing their employees with highly relevant, effective solutions at scale with speed that are often customized. And that's what we do. It's like, where does it hurt? You know, (laughs) what do you want to get better at? What are you trying to accomplish? And listen and listen and ask a zillion questions before we would ever suggest any possible solutions. Have you ever noticed that when it comes to relationship communication, what works at work will often work at home? What works at home will often work at work. In other words, are you having the right conversation with the right people in the room? That applies professionally as much as it does personally. Susan shared with us that she has just completed writing a new book that is more about personal communication. I just spent quite a bit of time focused on the book that's been circling me for so many years about the conversations that need to happen between two people on the ground face-to-face when things are going well and things are not going well. So I've been focused very much on those romantic relationships, those personal relationships, which, you know, has been great for me to look at my own relationships and what, what I'm doing, what I'm not doing, what are the conversations that are missing in business, I think this is a tricky time because some organizations are kind of desperate right now. They, you know, they're really not making any money. Everything is virtual. Some of their employees who are virtual, who are paid, are really not performing, not really doing much. How do you motivate them? You know, your your customer's reality got changed. They're no longer needing you or wanting you. I mean, there's a lot of desperation. And so I think it's going to be very important to take a deep breath and say, all right, let me remind myself of why I'm in this business. What is my purpose? What is my vision for this? The big why. It's, I used to lead sessions with companies where they would write a statement. And the first part of it would be, why do we exist? And it had to be from the customer's point of view. What? What is it that we do that is a value to our customers that makes a difference for them and that therefore matters to us? And I think it's it's important to revisit. And if you don't, if your heart doesn't feel a little warmer when you think about that, maybe it's time to do something else. I mean, you know, easier said than done because they're, you know, not a whole lot of possibilities out there, but that is changing as we're beginning to conquer COVID. We've got a ways to go, but, you know, we will get back to normal. And the question is, what do you want your life to be about? Because, you know, how we spend our days, this is Annie Dillard, again, another literary figure, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. How are you spending your days? And do you want to keep doing that day after day? Or do you want to have a different experience? So I think it's it's some of the big, the big question, you know, that's on the table. I was right, wasn't I? Susan is delightful. She is a lot of fun. And she just rained wisdom on us. I really admire her intentionality about designing the life you want by learning skillfully how to have the right conversations. Conversations drive relationships and relationships are the key to success in business and in life. And I want to challenge you, if you're a person that has people that work either for you or with you, I want to challenge you to lean in heavily 
to the skill of communication. And I would also encourage you to go to fierceinc.com. Sign up for Susan's newsletter. You'll get a lot of great information. Plus, you'll learn when Fierce Love comes out. And that's an area that could help all of us, I believe. Well, there you have it, folks. If you are a business leader and would like to know what hiring a coach would look like for you and your organization, head over to mymapscoach.com and let's set up a meeting. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and leaving us an honest review. It really helps us in our mission to help others. And please, if there's someone in your life that you know would benefit from this episode, share it with them. I hope you've enjoyed our time together. And I hope you'll join us next time as we continue to explore the stories of extraordinary individuals who choose difficult.